Hello, friends. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women of the Word teaching team, and I'm really, really glad to be with you here um, today. I love the book of Hebrews. It has felt incredibly applicable to our everyday lives. And I wanted to say also um, a hello to my friends at the West Campus, or I'm at the West Campus, at the South Campus and at um, the virtual campus. And I think I'm used to Cody saying hello to the West Campus. Anyway, loving Hebrews so much, and the chapters we are studying today are no exception to that because I feel like they're really rich and applicable and beautiful and a little hard to understand as modern-day Americans because that original audience were first-century Hebrew Christians. So part of what we'll do today is sort of look at the world as they saw it. I think that's going to help us understand um, some of why the author wrote what he did. And for me, it's been sort of amazing that the, uh, the truths of what the first century Hebrew Christians needed to know was so similar to what we need to know as well. So I hope that's fun for you as well. The art for our study this semester, the front of your cover, the graphics we see on the screens are honestly one of my all-time favorites of all of the years we've ever done Women in the Word because I like the simplicity of it and kind of the hard-hittingness idea of Jesus is greater than anything else in all of creation. That's a truth that I think almost all of us here would intellectually agree with pretty quickly, But what I've realized about myself in the last few weeks as we've studied it is although I'm quick to agree with it um, in my mind, my heart often says something different. It's made me realize how prone I am to wonder, how prone we all are to leave that God we love. So I like how the book of Hebrews just keeps pulling us back, keeps pulling us back to Jesus. And I've said a lot to myself in the last few weeks. You know, something will come up in my mind that feels sort of big or overwhelming. And I'll think, nope, Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is greater than that. So I love that graphic so much. There's some parts of the Bible, I think, that can be really well-studied, well-understood sort of in isolation. Maybe a single psalm or a chapter of Proverbs, some of the stories in the Old Testament. I don't think Hebrews is that kind of scripture. I feel like it falls more into the category of needing to be looked at as a whole. So one of the things that I'm doing this semester is continually going back to the chapters before it and trying to link and build on what we've already learned. I think that very much will be the truth with the chapters we're reading today. So let's look back for just a second at some of the things we learned in chapters one and two. In those first two chapters, our author established Jesus' supremacy over the angels, and in those chapters, you get several really deep descriptions of the Lord. Remember when it says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe. He's crowned with glory and honor. And at the end of chapter two last week, we learned that that knowledge of the great glory and supremacy of Jesus should draw us into paying careful and close attention to him, should lead us to worship. And chapter three plays right into that with another call for God's people to deeply consider the greatness of Jesus, and to factor that truth is 
uh, of who he is into everything we think and everything we say and everything we do. This chapter will establish Jesus' supremacy over Moses, which is a total given for most of us, but that was not at all the case for those first century Christians. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. And then using all of this truth about the greatness of Jesus as a foundation, we're warned over and over in this chapter not to lapse into disbelief. And the author uses one of the most important stories in um, Israel's history to illustrate just how quickly um, those first century Christians and how quickly we can fall away from the Lord. Um, And he uses that as a warning. So open your Bibles with me. I'm going to start reading chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to follow along. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that's the father, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all things, in all God's house, as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, or we are his people, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Okay, so right off the bat, in verse one, you get another one of these descriptions of Jesus. They're peppered throughout Hebrews. I'm trying to make special note of them and mark them as I study. And here he's called both an apostle and a high priest. The word apostle here is used in a very general sense. It really just means here a messenger sent by um, the Father uh, with a message for people. Now, we talked a little bit about what it means to be a high priest last week. There's a lot more about what it means as that Jesus was our high priest in the weeks to come. But here's what I think is so great about this description right here of Jesus. As an apostle, he was sent by the Father down to us with a message. He's the Word made flesh. Remember, we learned he's the exact imprint of God's nature. And as a high priest, as our high priest, he became our perfect sin substitute and sacrifice so that we can be reconciled now to the perfect God. So you see these dual roles as God's messenger and our high priest, and it presents this really whole and complete picture of who Jesus is and how he perfectly and completely bridged that gap between holy father and sinful man. And I think that's amazing. And I think that's one of those things to sort of um, remember as we study Hebrews. In the rest of this section, you get these comparisons between Moses and Jesus all of it illustrating how Jesus is greater than Moses in every way. And this is one of those places in Hebrews, like I just said, that won't make as much sense to us as it might otherwise as modern day Americans. What we really have to do is put on our first century Christian um, understanding of why that even needs to be said, because um, it was not a given that 
that Jesus was greater than Moses necessarily for those first century Christians. They needed to be reminded of this truth. Because for these men and women, Moses was the most venerated man in all of history. He was their hero. He had been their um, hero from hundreds and hundreds of years. He was the man who stood up to Pharaoh. He led them out of slavery. He gave them their law, which defined them as a people and set them apart from all other peoples on the earth. He led them with great courage and zeal. He had the awesome privilege of knowing God face-to-face in a way that none of the rest of them got to do. And that um, definitely set him apart in their eyes. Um, So our author's doing a couple of things here. The first thing he's doing is placing Moses for these people in his proper place in history. He was God's faithful hero and leader, but the honor that's due Moses is far eclipsed by the honor that would be due Jesus. And there's this understanding that if Jesus is greater than even Moses, he is greater than any man who ever lived. There's so many implications to that truth. We'll come back to that shortly. The author goes on to talk about how Moses was simply an important part of God's house. And all throughout these verses here, when you see God's house, you can replace that word God's house with God's people. uh, Moses was part of God's house, but Jesus is the creator, the builder, the life giver of God's people. Moses was simply a servant, but Jesus is God's son. Okay, now look with me for a minute again at verse six. As I said, and um, it says, and we are his house. You could also say we are God's family. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So I wanna be careful here not to let the words if indeed throw us off because this is one of those places and there's others in the book of Hebrews where it could sound like it's possible to lose our salvation if we don't behave in a certain way or that we could gain our salvation if we do manage to always behave well. That's not true. Remember, we have that great list of um, assurance of salvation verses at the beginning of our questions. We can always refer back to those, but I wanna remind us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, once we have given our lives to Christ and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that's a done deal for us for all of eternity. So the best way to understand the verse uh, that says, if indeed, is that Christ followers, because of the nature that's given to us when we trust Christ, will have confidence and hope in the living God because now it's who we are. Now, we all know that confidence and hope is going to grow as we become more mature in our faith and we have experience together with the Lord under our belts. We also know from our own experience that no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, there are gonna be times in our lives where that confidence is a little bit wobbly. Nevertheless, it is there. And I like to remember that even our most basic faith is a gift from God. It's not something we conjure up on our own. It um, belongs to him. And his gift to us is that confidence and hope in the living God. Okay, so that phrase, hold fast to your confidence, not a part of our everyday speech. 
I don't think I've ever said, hold fast our confidence um, in a conversation. So let's talk exactly about what it means. I think it's easier understood if we said to stay courageous or don't give up or endure in your faith even when things are hard or my mom always likes to say, keep on keeping on. When the going gets tough, as it always has and it always will, when God's goodness is obscured by our suffering, remember and consider exactly who Jesus is and keep the faith and everything we're learning in Hebrews is helping us to do that. When the going gets tough, as it always has and always will, when his goodness is obscured by suffering, remember that Jesus Christ, God's son, is on our side. And also remember this about Jesus from Hebrews 1 on your verse sheet. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the Jesus that we put our confidence in. That's the one that we hold on to even when life is real tough. So the Hebrews tended to fall back on what their hero Moses did and said when their times got tough. I'm willing to bet that not a single one of us has ever wanted to venerate Moses like that and thought, what would Moses do in that situation? But we all do have things in our life that we're tempted to fall back on when things get really hard, when we get really tired, um, when we're worn kind of thin. And each of us forgets from time to time that Jesus is greater than our hard things. So what do we do about that tendency? One of the things we do, maybe one of the best things we do, is to purposefully, thoughtfully, considerately cultivate our hope in Christ alone. Look at what Psalm 62 teaches us. This is also on your verse sheet. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Okay, so that is beautiful and great truth. It's also a little lofty. What does that look like in everyday life? Just a few of the things I've been doing since I've, really since I've started uh, just in the last few weeks, the study of Hebrews is I'm beginning to write the references in the back of one of my Bibles of descriptions of who um, God is and who Jesus is. uh, I had the idea from these um, passages that are here in Hebrews, but they're sprinkled all throughout the Bible. Um, And I'm just writing those references on the back um, cover of my Bible so that when I do get wobbly, I can go back and real quickly find those reminders of who God is. Another thing I'm trying to do is really block out the rest of the world and think hard and meditate on uh, the um, words of worship songs. I love to sing and I love worship music, but I also have a, re- uh, my mind wanders really easily. So I'm praying beforehand and working really hard on that because man, those words strengthen my soul. And one other thing um, I have the privilege of doing, and hopefully you do too, maybe around your tables, is I'm beginning to, to work to listen really hard 
when I'm in a conversation with um, a man or woman who's walked with the Lord for a long time and listen to their strategies, to the way they have um, lived out falling back on the truth that Jesus is greater than all of um, the hard things in their life. You know, you can always pick out that person who's walked with God for a long time who you just feel this sense of peace um, in their spirit. Even though life has been really hard, when I see that, I'm listening really carefully. There's a million other things, of course. Uh, I think we each find what works for us And I think we really need to because living according to the truth that Jesus is greater is part of who we are and it's also pretty challenging. Now, our author has shown that Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than any other man. He's reminded us of these identifying characteristics of what it means to be a Christ follower, that our confidence is in him above all else. So he now moves on to this other big idea that hinges on what we believe to be true of God. Look with me now at verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So you'll notice that this little section um, in most of your Bibles is probably offset a little bit. It is a paraphrase of a small section of Psalm 95. So just like we saw in Hebrews 1 and 2, the author is taking um, Old Testament passages and using them to teach us New Testament truths about Jesus. And this begins right here in verse 7, one of those five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We've already had one. Um, This is two. There's several more to come. And because warnings are so much a part of Hebrews, I've been thinking about warnings a lot in the last few weeks. And it made me realize that warnings have always been a big part of my life. I come from a long line of people who I love very, very much who would call themselves safety-minded or safety-conscious or people who look ahead. I call them super anxious. And... um, I happen to be one of those outliers in my family. I'm just not by nature prone to worry, but I have a lot of people who express their um, love to one another by giving them lots of warnings and seeing all of the pitfalls that could come for whatever situation you're in. Believe me, anything you say or do um, can come with a lot of dangers. And because of my personality, I really have been prone to most often sort of blow those things off, not listen to them very carefully. Um, But they were always well-meaning and often the older I get realize wise as well. Sometimes I was right. And sometimes everything's been fine, but the truth is, if I look back on my life, it is littered with disasters, large and small, that honestly could have been avoided had I listened a little more carefully to some of those um, people in my life and taking, taking those warnings to heart. And I hope that this is not a video that either of my kids ever, ever come across so that they know I don't listen very well either sometimes. Um, 
But with with the wisdom of age, and maybe they'll have that one day too, comes that willingness now to take warnings a little more seriously. And I'm willing to take them a little more seriously because I've been in some of those disasters that could have been avoided. And I hope that's what we'll all do with this study is to take these warnings pretty seriously together. So this little section of Psalm 95, what it does is recount an important piece of Israel's history that those first century Hebrew Christians were being warned not to repeat, and we're being warned not to repeat because God's people from the beginning and now have a history of forgetfulness and disbelief. So here's what happened. Here's what that psalm is telling us the story of. After centuries, centuries of brutal enslavement in Egypt, God finally sets his people free. Uh, This is in the book of Exodus through a series of astonishing miracles. They happened right before Israel's eyes. They didn't have to be told to Israel. Israel got to see them. There was one after another. And finally, they um, are on the other side. They're outside of Egypt. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. They had their promised land right there waiting for them, which was their promised inheritance of Uh, to come, and that was going to be a place of plenty and goodness and rest. Even though they had just personally seen and experienced God's power and care in crazy, amazing ways, when the uh, inevitable obstacles popped up on their way to the promised land, they so quickly forgot everything God had just done for them and told them they gave in to their fear and to their anxiety and to their disbelief and to what the other people were saying rather than to what God was saying. So listen again to the words that are used to describe their thoughts and behaviors. This is how it's described in these verses. Hardened hearts, rebellion, going astray, and provoking God's wrath. So both the repetition and the strength of that language is really meant to be alarming to us because the consequence for that disbelieving and grumbling people were really severe. That entire generation that could have left slavery and walked right into their promised land instead ended up wandering aimlessly, homeless basically, in the desert for 40 years until every one of them died and God could start over with a fresh generation. And I think of what they missed out on in that 40 years and the fact that there wasn't a do-over there. It's a pretty sobering warning. The message is clear. Disbelief is a really big deal to God. When he showed his mighty power to Israel, when he rescued them with miracle after miracle, when he offered them something so good, this rest from their toil and their misery, but in fear, they turned their backs on him. God was rightfully angry. Now, the early believers that were in this original audience were also in danger of wavering in their faith, falling away from Jesus, the things that they knew to be true of him. Times were getting tough for them, and that's why they needed this warning. They didn't want history to repeat itself either. But after we read this, I wonder, do we even have to wonder what God thinks when we, who are on this side of the cross, receive his mercy and his grace and his blessing and the ways that throughout our days he had, he's rescued us from sin, from, um, from separation from him, from consequences that could have been ours. And then we quickly forget when our times get tough 
that that mercy and grace and power and love is still ours every time, every day? Do we have to wonder what aimlessness is in our own lives and what lost blessing is in our own life that we can avoid if we will believe God and take him at his word? In the simplest terms, when Israel came up against a scary situation, they looked at their circumstances and they looked at God and they chose to see their circumstances as bigger and more powerful than God. So I want us to keep that in mind as we continue to read in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And here we have two gems that I love so much, some just straightforward, unambiguous instruction. Here's the warning. We're all prone to forget the power and greatness of God. That is a grievous sin. And here's the way out. We have to help each other. None of us can live this Christian life alone. First, we need to be really careful to remember just how easy it is for any of us to fall off track, to wander away, how easy it is for us to do it, and how easy it is for the sister beside us to do that. Um, here's how this Old, Tam- ex- Old Testament example shows this to be true, because uh, here's what the Israelites, we have a slide here. I want to show you what the Israelites just had experienced, not but a few weeks ago. Okay, this is, we just talked about it. This is when Israel is leaving Egypt, headed out. They literally walked across a dry bed that should have been covered in feet of water. The hands of God himself have held back the waters I can't imagine what that looked like. This really happened. And then after the Israelites um, got on the other side, it closed back up over the Egyptians. And they just experienced that only a few weeks before the next hard thing came. And they thought, I don't think so. No way God can handle these giants in this land. There's nothing we can do about this. So if, if people who got to see and experience that we're so quick to forget God's power um, that I think we better believe that it can happen to us too and it can happen to the gal next to us too. So I think it's when we admit that weakness in ourselves and admit how much we need each other that the importance of encouragement and help really shows itself. I think we also really need to remember that what we say even offhandedly to a brother and sister in Christ, especially when they're having a wobbly day, can be the difference between her walking with the Lord and keeping the faith and holding steady under pressure or collapsing into fear and anxiety and flat out forgetting the greatness of God. That's a pretty sobering um, warning again, but I think it's important to remember. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11 on your verse sheet. Again, straightforward truth. Encourage each other and build each other up just as you are doing. If we are going to endure in our faith till the end, 
we are going to have to do two things. We have to tend our own hearts carefully and purposefully. We have to consider Jesus, and we have to consider him greater than whatever it is we're facing day in and day out. And because that is not easy to do, because it's a lot easier said than done, we have got to encourage each other often and with purpose. We've got to encourage each other to believe God and take him at his word. There are lots of ways to do that. Figure out some of them. Make them a part of your everyday life. I just heard a great story in our leaders meeting this morning about um, someone who was deeply encouraged by just getting a text during the week um, that somebody was praying for her with a scripture in it. Um, that is a simple everyday way that we can do that kind of thing. I think also of um, just being willing, even when it's sometimes sort of awkward, instead of um, commiserating with somebody necessarily, not that we don't want to be sympathetic, but instead of sort of subtly allowing somebody to keep on um, disbelieving and sinning, to just kind of... Um, be willing to give some hard truth in love sometimes. That's a skill that we kind of have to cultivate, but we might as well practice and start somewhere. Okay, let's go on reading now. Let's pick up in verse 16 of chapter three. We're going to see a continuation of the, the discussions about those lessons um, that we learned and the warnings to be heeded from Israelites' history. So the author says, for who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter the rest because of disbelief. Now, I want to skip down... Um, no, actually, let me keep reading for a second. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, we who have believed, enter that rest. Now, skip down with me to verse... Six. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that's the rest, and those who were formerly received the good news failed to enter the rest because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, so back again to Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And one more skipping down, let us in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Sorry for um, skipping around so often. There's some repetition here and just because of time, I wanted to just make sure we got uh, those key verses there. So this idea of rest can be a little tricky, admittedly. There are a couple of kinds of rest I want to think about and talk about here. The first rest is that eternal rest in heaven that we're all promised as believers. One day we're going to get to be in the constant presence of God in a glorified body without all of the difficulty of sin and death and decay that is so much a part of our everyday lives now. And that is going to be a glorious kind of rest. And we are all, um, those of us who are in Christ, are, uh, have that to look 
forward to. But there's also a more present kind of rest right now, and that is the rest for our mind, for our soul, when we hear what God says through his word, and we believe him, and when we make the choice to simply take him at his word and obey what it says. Okay, so how did that Hebrew audience, original readers here, enjoy that rest? How do we enjoy it? I think the key is in chapter four, verse seven. So let me just read that one more time. This is, again, part of the Old Testament um, quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So first of all, notice that it says today, not later, not when life is easier, not when you know your Bible's a little bit better, but today, when you hear the Lord speak, don't harden your hearts, don't disbelieve him. So if you flip that around to the positive, the same message is today, when you hear his voice, listen to him and believe him. The Israelites heard God say, you're no longer slaves, you're free, go into the good land I have for you, I've got this, all you've got to do is go in and take it, there's some enemies there, but I'm going to overcome them for you. They heard God say that, but they didn't believe what he said. And the discipline of the Lord we saw weighed so heavily on them, they missed out on that inheritance, they missed out on the land, they missed out on this lovely and fruitful and safe homeland And they missed out for the rest of their lives on the rest that would have come from that. The early Hebrew Christians, um, that was the, the ancient Israelites. Then the early Hebrew Christians, who were the first audience of this book, certainly faced fear and hardship too. Think about the persecution that they would have experienced for uh, turning to Christ. They would have faced pressure from the government that had literally the power of life and death in their hands over these early believers. I can only imagine the pressure that they faced from friends and family and coworkers and everybody around them who hadn't turned to Jesus and thought they had lost their minds. Um, That would have been really significant. And that would have caused them, um, some of them, to slowly begin, or maybe even quickly begin, to um, waver in their faith. Here's the truth. All day long, all day long, we have hard things in our lives too, at home and at work and with our health and everyday disappointments and real big disappointments and griefs that just keep on coming. And all day long, there are voices that come from outside in our world and from inside of our own minds that talk to us about all of those hard things. And so we have a choice that we make with our will. Are we going to listen to that voice that says, this is too big, this is too hard, this is too much, there's nothing to do but collapse into anxiety and fear? Or we can choose And it's not easy, but we can choose because we have the power of God living in us to hear and to believe God's voice and to do what he tells us to do. And it's there in that choice to hear and to believe and to obey that we find rest and peace. And our souls may be weary and tired, but there's rest and peace there nevertheless. I want you to look back with me on your verse sheet at Hebrews 1.1. We've already talked about this a little bit, but I think it's such a fundamental truth to keep reminding ourselves of. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
That is the Jesus that we choose to hear and to believe. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through the wisdom of mature believers and great books and podcasts and fellow believers. He speaks. There is no shortage of Jesus' word in our world. We listen. We trust. We obey. And that is where we find our rest and our peace. Listen to me, or listen with me to Jesus' own words in Matthew 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for your yoke is easy and my burden is light. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus' words. It's in him and his word that we find our rest. Okay, let's continue reading. Let's look at um, verses 12 and 13 in um, Hebrews chapter 4. Now, these are verses that are often, particularly verse 12, not as much 13, but these are verses that are real often um, taught in isolation. In fact, this is the first time ever in my life that I've studied these verses uh, in uh, the the context of the whole of Hebrews chapter four. So let's, uh, let me read them and then we'll talk about them. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must Give account. And that's a picture of how truly powerful God's word is. So we know Hebrews is written to Christians. So the sword that's talked about here is not separating believers from unbelievers. The idea here, rather, is that believers, those who know and love God's word, are to really understand and see and know the power of God and his word. It is alive. It is relevant in every season and every need. And when I was looking at this this morning, I just thought about how many times in my life I've gone back to the same familiar scripture. You know, we all probably have a handful of those scriptures we go back to over and over. And every time it speaks to me, um, either in a new and fresh way or its power is renewed in me, no matter what the circumstance is. It can be totally different. And that same scripture um, speaks to me in a new way. That's one of the ways that it is alive and always relevant. I also cannot help but think about how this chapter is a perfect example of how it is alive and always relevant because it was written to an audience several thousand years ago in a completely different culture, but the human heart is the human heart, and so the lessons they needed are the same as today, and there is not another book like that. I'm a reader and I have a handful of novels that I read over and over. They're my comfort books. um, And I love them because of the familiarity of them. But what I was also thinking about this morning is how those novels don't change. I read them and like reading them over and over because I know exactly how they're going to make me feel. And now I know exactly how I'm going to respond to them. They're not alive. This 
is alive in a way that nothing else in all of history is. And I just think there's, there's such glory and beauty in that. The word is the very voice of the living God. It says neither sword large nor small. Um, or what I was thinking is that there's swords that are neither large nor small or part of everyday life. I, I think it'd be easier to think of uh, the scripture here or what he's saying as a really sharp scalpel in the hands of a surgeon because the imagery that he's speaking of in this division is of something very precise and sharp that can separate out something that's so bound together you wouldn't normally in your normal understanding think that it even could be separated. And so you know it's so joined together in my own heart and mind that it seems unable to separate. That's, that's my truest intentions and motivations and attitudes and the words I speak in my mind. Like every believer, like you, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I have the mind of Christ. Um, I am um, pursuing God and growing, but I also have that old sinful self in me rattling around in there. And honestly and truthfully, I am not always sure, and it happens on a daily basis, whether some of what I Think and some of my motivations and some of my attitudes, whether those are out of a pure heart or whether they are out of sin in some different way. And I, I could give illustrations, but I think you know exactly what I mean there, that we all have those things where you think, oh, I'm good, and then come back later and think, mm, no, that was totally pride or whatever. Um, I wrestle with it often because I don't want to think and act out of sin but I can't always figure out what is what. Um, we might not understand ourselves completely. We don't understand ourselves completely, but God does. And it's, it's, it's his word, this is saying, is the tool that exposes our innermost thoughts and motives. Here's what one author I read said. God's word can reach to the innermost recesses of our being. We must not think we can bluff our way through anything, for there are no secrets hidden from God. There is going to be a day when we stand before God and give account for everything we have said and done. Now, we are saved by grace through faith. We won't stand before God um, in judgment, but we will stand before him and have that conversation. Paul talks about it this way in 1 Corinthians on your verse sheet. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Wow. If that thought scares you, let it be a holy fear. Um, one that leads you toward his word and leads you toward his love and grace. One thing we can do is to simply pray that the Lord will use his word to reveal our own hearts to us. It's something I've been doing as I've been studying this. Um, I've been thinking about that scalpel and how there is sin in my heart that I don't even recognize, but he does. And if I want to get rid of it, I need to 
allow him, even ask him to use his words to reveal that to me. And in that way, when I see it, then I can repent and turn from it. And when he exposes some motives that maybe I thought weren't right as, hey, no, that's okay, keep going in this direction, then I can ask him to grow that fruit in me. And he and I both know that that fruit in me is going to be only his good doing The value of the word of God here could not be stated in more powerful words. Um, The um, all-knowingness and all-seeingness of God couldn't be stated more powerfully. And the goodness and grace of God in saving us, even though he knows every last bit of us, couldn't be stated more powerfully either, I think. Jesus and his word and his ways are greater than anything or anyone in all of creation. So he is where we place all of our confidence and our hope. And because he really and truly is greater than any obstacle or hardship we face, when he speaks, we hear, we believe, we obey, and then we get to enjoy his peaceful rest even when life is still really difficult. And it's hard spiritual work but it's worth the effort when we listen hard and allow God's word to do its powerful work in us as we walk with him. I wanna pray Romans 15, 13 for you as we close today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, the source of our hope, will fill these women completely with joy and peace because they trust in you. Will you overflow in them a confident hope through the power of your Holy Spirit? And I ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.